Pregnancy, birth, parenting. It means so many different things to so many different people. What does living a healthy reproductive life mean in the context of reproductive justice? Our birth conversations are often the kind that get left out of the mainstream. I promise, like life, we will leave you with some answers, but perhaps more questions. These are the birth conversations that matter. These are the birth talks. Are you ready? Black pregnant people in Canada have substantially higher rates of premature birth than their white counterparts, mirroring the disparities in the United States. Now, as we are living through the pandemic, predominantly Black neighborhoods in Toronto are being hit the hardest by COVID-19. And there is a strong correlation between high coronavirus rates and low income, poor working conditions and being racialized. Race is a significant factor in just how closely monitored cis women and trans folk are in pregnancy. Not to mention, according to many Black Canadian women, how seriously their health concerns are taken and how they fare both during and after childbirth. And not enough is being done to change that. In this series, we get right into why Black births matter. We hear the birth stories from our Black women and gender diverse folk. We learn about the history of midwives of color, and why this history is important for healing and social justice. And we badass it out with Black activists and Black midwives about how to make it better. Because change needs to happen. We no longer accept or want to live the disparities of the past and present. We are ready for our future. Today's episode, we are given the opportunity to hear directly from Simone, Chanel, Ingrid, Kosar, and Patisse. Six different stories from Black parents who navigated their pregnancies and care. Some of what you hear may deepen your understanding, challenge your assumptions, leave you with questions, and hopefully motivate you to create some change. Our hope is that you take in the message today. Hello, everyone. My name is Simone Carpio, and I'm a Black Jamaican mother of two. I'm what people call a boy mom. My birth experience left me feeling disempowered with my first baby, but empowered after the second child. In the early 2000s, I became pregnant with my firstborn. I was so elated and surprised because I was told by a general practitioner that I may never get pregnant and to not get my hopes up. I was 17. So as you can imagine, I left that meeting feeling disappointed, but quickly moved on because I was not sure how things would work out as I get older. Growing up, I did not have any role models in my life that were disabled. My mother is my biggest cheerleader and support, but she was learning through me what it is like to be disabled. Growing up, she was determined to ensure that I lived a normal life as possible, and her motivation helped me to start believing anything is possible. She planted the seed of hope in me. A year after being married, I got pregnant with our first son. We were excited, but our excitement was met with mixed feelings and emotions. Some friends and family were riddled with fear because I had many health challenges. Plus, they had never experienced a disabled woman being pregnant before. I felt like the guinea pig of my family and friends and doctors, of course. My GP referred me to an OBGYN because he felt ill-equipped to govern my care. At my first meeting with my, the OBGYN, he said, 
I have never cared for a pregnant person with a disability, so I will need your help in telling me about your limitations. It was at that point I realized that this is going to be a mission, and I was up for the challenge. I heard of my pregnant friends getting doulas and midwives, but when I inquired, uh, I was told that my situation was too complex and it was better handled by a specialist. The OBGYN's office was not fully accessible. My wheelchair barely got through the narrow doors. The check-in desk was too high and the washrooms were tiny cubicles. I had to ask my husband and to hand them my health card during my first visit. With subsequent visits, reception looked out for me and signed me in automatically. If I needed to use the washroom, I had to take the elevator to the ground floor to the only accessible washroom in the building. My OBGYN was kind. He took the liberty of doing his own research to make my visit smooth, even making adjustments in his office to make sure um, my wheelchair navigated around and make it more accommodating. The examination tables in every specialist office I visited was high and I needed help on and off the table. I had to drive out of the local area to my main hospital to get blood work and ultrasound done because they were more accommodating and accessible. I also decided to take an attendant with me to each appointment to ensure that I was safe and that I felt comfortable. As parents-to-be, we both look, were looking forward to the Lamas classes, but our first class was very disappointing. The instructor had no idea how to incorporate folks with disabilities into the class. All instructions were for able-bodied mothers. I was the only disabled mom there and I felt unwelcomed. When the classes ended, my husband and I looked at each other and we knew we had wasted our money registering for that class. I proactively bought a book entitled, What to Expect When Expecting. This book helped me to navigate most things about my pregnancy journey, but not regarding circumstances surrounding my disability. Another thing I noticed during my journey is the decisions were being made without my consult, such as being informed that I was being, gonna deliver by cesarean. No other options were explored. And being young and naive at the time, I didn't question it. I was, all, I was also scheduled at one point to have a screening test done to determine if there are any problems with my fetus, with the fetus. I quickly de declined because the doctor did not have a strong argument as to why that test was even necessary. And I found that quite insensitive. After giving birth, I was assigned a lactation consultant after becoming frustrated with the many nurses' conventional ways of teaching me how to breastfeed my baby. The lactation consultant was amazing. She asked questions and together we worked out a way to breastfeed that worked best for me. Before I was discharged from the hospital, a social worker came to visit me and proceeded to ask questions about my home accommodation. I found some of the questions insinuate that I am incapable of caring for my baby at home. And it was assumed that I had not made any preparations for the baby once I got home. I questioned the motives for this visit and asked if non-disabled moms got visits from social workers or insinuating or inquisitive questions. My questions were met with blank stares. The answer is no. 
I had friends who had told me that they never met a social worker during any of their pregnancy or delivery. We felt that because of my disability, they saw incompetence. My second pregnancy was a lot better, much easier because I was more knowledgeable and I was better equipped. And I'm thankful for the supportive husband and community who has made my pregnancy journey and birthing experience enjoyable. My name is Patisse. I'm the executive director at Birthmark, a charity that provides no cost doula support to folks who need support along the reproductive journey, but may not have the means to access it. So that's my nine to five, but all day, every day, I'm an Afro-Caribbean single mom of two, proudly rocking my natural hair in a salt and pepper low cut. Now for my birth experience. I've got two kids and they say it takes a village to raise a child. My first child was born with the entire uh, village, AKA my family packed into my birthing suite at Mount Sinai Hospital back in 1999. Not an experience I would want to relive as I was basically on stage, but not the star of the show as I should have felt like in that moment. Everyone was there for the birth, but with the exception of my best friend, I did not feel like anyone was there for me. Fast forward 12 years, yeah, you heard me correctly, 12 years later, I decided to have baby number two. Unlike my first, I planned this pregnancy, and this time I assembled my village with a little more thought. Spectators, uninvited. Only those who were there to help me were welcome. I had one friend who lived close by who offered to drive me there, and my best friend, who happened to be my backup driver, offered to be there to support me again. So now picture it, May 5th, 2011, 39 weeks and one day pregnant and beyond over the 2 a.m. soccer practice that was going on in utero every night. I step into my OB's office for my now weekly appointment and we decide to check my cervix. You know, I'm getting close. Might as well see how far along I'm, if I'm starting to dilate or how far along I've gotten. Verdict comes back as cervix still high, not dilated, go ahead and schedule for next week. I'm not gonna lie, I left there a wee bit I'm not gonna lie, I left there a wee bit disappointed that I'd be spending another week negotiating with my body as to how to get up to use the bathroom. On the way home, I let my support team know that it would be another week before the baby came, so go ahead, live your life, have a great weekend. The next day was a Friday, and a friend of mine who also happened to be on mat leave with a three-month-old. Um, she gave me a call and she's like, why don't you just come hang out with me? I've got some errands to run. You're just sitting at home, twiddling your thumbs, waiting on this baby. Let's just hang out together. So I went with her and we were all over Toronto and spent the last few hours walking up and down Costco, getting her groceries together. And I grabbed a few things as well. That night I was in the sweetest of exhaustive sleeps, something I had not had in a while with all the anxiety surrounding waiting for this baby. And that one good sleep I'd finally gotten into I was woken up by wetness in the bed. I'm lying there, you know, I'd shifted my body over to a drier spot, but I was also feeling these weird sensations like my period was coming. And you know, when you're kind of half asleep and you're not really sure what's going on, it took me a while to clue in that I was pregnant, so it couldn't possibly be my period. Um, I got up, put on a, changed myself, put on a pad, and I was sitting on the couch for a while, just, you know, focusing on this weird period-like sensation I was having and realizing that not only were they getting more intense, but they were starting to form a pattern. Instinct told me that maybe I should go to the hospital. Maybe that would be a good idea. So now we're like at around 2.33 a.m. I call my designated driver. She's rolling out of the club, confirmed drunk, says she can't drive me. 
my best friend had gone to a basketball tournament with her daughter in Montreal. So as I mentioned, I'm a single mom and it's me and my 12 year old at home. So I wake her up out of her bed, gently out of her sleep, let her know that I called a cab and that we we're gonna go to the hospital just to see if something was happening. Cause again, I'm still dazed and confused. I'm not quite sh sure, nor can I believe this is actually going down. Um, so we get in the cab, I call my cousin to come pick her up from the hospital so that she would keep her for me overnight. And the whole way in the cab, I'm just focused. I'm breathing through my contractions, feeling like a boss at this. I arrive at the hospital and I say the triage nurse, I think my water broke, but I'm not quite sure. So she checks me and yes, it's amniotic fluid. And guess what? I'm seven centimeters dilated. By the time we got to a birthing suite and got me into the gown, the need to push was overwhelming. And OB came and we got down to business. Not my OB mind you, because I wasn't delivering for another week, remember? So she was off call. In four pushes, my son was out. I had several proud moments that night, but my most empowering moment in that whole four hour wet bed to crying baby ordeal was when the OB tried to tell me to push and I snapped out of my active labor trance and gave her the nastiest look and said, no, I'm gonna wait until I feel the contraction. And I did. And I went, when I felt that contraction, I roared that baby out. It's funny, I never imagined birthing alone to be one of my fiercest, strongest, most memorable moments in life, but it was, and I couldn't be prouder. My name is Ingrid Palmer. My first born's due date was May 12th, but she made her grand debut on April 22nd. Her dad helped me move into a new apartment at Eglinton and Markham at three months gestation before completely disappearing. I was in my first year of post-secondary, and I think he wasn't very keen on having a baby with someone who was slowly going blind. I had been diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa when I was 14. There are no cure and no treatments to be had for this. I was, I was scared to be a parent, but I was still excited to have my baby. After being diagnosed with polycystic ovary syndrome at 16 years old and being told that I would likely not be able to conceive without medical intervention, I had decided that by, on my limited student budget, birth control pills just weren't necessary and had opted to buy a huge box of ramen noodles instead with my last $20. Because I only menstruated twice a year, for most of my life, there was no uh, missed period. And the only way that I found out that I was pregnant the first time was because the job I had at that time required me to have a full medical checkup every September. I still had usable vision as I was working as a caregiver for other disabled people, the irony isn't lost, one disabled person looking after another type of disabled person, but I didn't become declared legally blind until about eight years after that. Anyways, I was two months along when I found out I was pregnant and it took me another two months to find a doctor who would take me on as a patient. I kept getting turned down. I didn't know why, and I couldn't make them take me on, of course. And so finally, my hairdresser 
with great hesitation, recommended a doctor to me. She warned me that he was not very nice personally towards his patients, and it wasn't someone that she really thought I should have as a doctor for my first experience in pregnancy, but since I couldn't get one, she gave me his number. When I contacted his office, I was immediately accepted, and the first time I visited, I noticed that the waiting room was crammed full of immigrant women. My hairdresser was not joking or exaggerating. He was a complete asshole. And even though he was black himself, originally from Trinidad, he had absolutely no respect, consideration, or empathy for his patients. We often got into yelling matches because he was the type of authoritarian who expected you to do exactly what he said with no questions asked. And I refused to take his bullshit. I demanded answers to my questions and explanations at every turn. When he found out about my visual impairment and my polycystic ovaries diagnosis, he wanted me to have a procedure called an amniocentesis because he felt that me getting pregnant without medical intervention likely meant that my baby would have some type of disability or impairment. When I found out the side effects or the dangers associated with the procedure, I absolutely refused. He tried to uh, make me have an abortion, and I absolutely told him I would not. I had no problem with having a child uh, with a disability. He was a horrible doctor, but I felt stuck with him. I had aged out of the child welfare system and had been living on my own, working part-time and going to school. So my options were non-existent. I kept working the night shift at Bellwoods, and I going to school during the daytime. I, the night before, sorry, I had carried the baby very low throughout my pregnancy and my pelvis became increasingly bruised and painful as she grew on top of it. Getting up and going back down were excruciating experiences that produced loud groans of pain each time. I couldn't lift my legs easily to step up and so it was a good thing that I was living in an apartment at the time. The day before I gave birth, I was very uncomfortable. I kept feeling like I had to go to the washroom very badly. But every time I went, very little actually came out. But the intense pressure remained. I had already concluded prenatal classes and nothing about what I was feeling was recognizable to what they had told me. I didn't feel a tight band around my tummy that came and went away, so I didn't think that I was in labor. I ended up spending that night uh, sitting on the toilet with my feet propped up on a kitchen chair because I was so tired of the frequent trips, so I basically slept on the toilet. The next morning, I had uh, one of my regular appointments with the doctor, and when I told him about what I was experiencing, he said, I think you are in labor. When he checked, it turned out that I was four centimeters dilated, even though I was about three weeks away from my due date. He told me that I had to get right over to the hospital. Luckily, he wasn't too far away from Scarborough General, and so I simply hopped on the bus. It was so hard to keep from just shouting out to everybody that, hey, I'm going to have my baby now. When I walked into the emergency room, I told the nurse with a big, huge smile on my face that I was here to have my baby. I was in labor. She gave me a really doubtful look and said, who said? 
I told her that the doctor should have messaged her by now that I would be arriving. She offered me a wheelchair, which I cheerfully refused, and up we went up to the maternity ward. I was in the hospital alone for several hours. I tried calling a few people, some friends, but I just couldn't get a hold of anyone. The only person I had was my doctor. And by now, because no one else had showed up, he knew that I that he was the only person I had too. He offered me some medicine that would make my contractions come sooner and harder. And he also offered to pull on my cervix to speed up the process. Not having anyone there to talk me out of it, I agreed. Um, and let's just say that having those procedures done like your cervix pulled on is not a pleasant experience at all. The contractions did start to come uh, more earnestly and I was in a great deal of discomfort, sweating, trying to remember the breathing methods, having really dry mouth and not having anyone there who could give me some ice. I was completely alone except for the doctor and the nurse who were over in the corner uh, making out. Yeah, you heard me right. By the time I would, by this time I was at the bottom of the bed, they had dropped it down the lower half and I, uh, you know, I had my legs up, but neither of them was paying any attention to me at all, even though I was steadily asking for assistance. The nurse would nervously glance over at me from time to time, but the doctor kept assuring her that I had quite a long ways to go um, in the labor process, so not to worry about me. I could feel the baby moving down. And trust me, you can't mistake the feeling of something coming out of you. There's absolutely nothing comparable. So I raised my voice and started to scream loudly for help. Help, help, somebody help me. The doctor snarled, shut up, without even looking around. No one came from the outside. I watched my daughter's head crest. Help! I screamed. Help! The nurse finally managed to pull her lips off the doctor's, glance around at me, and then said, oh, doctor, look. He ran over just in time to catch my baby before she fell to the floor. He laid her on my stomach, and I forgot about everything for a while. She was so warm and sticky and all mine. All I could think was, thank God. He cut the umbilical cord and shortly after they took her away for the standard examinations. We waited for the placenta to present, but after several minutes, nothing happened and the doctor came to see what was happening. I was just sitting right here inside you, he yelled, and simply yanked it out. I screamed and jerked backwards and he yelled at me, now look what you did. Apparently I tore. And then he proceeded to stitch me up with absolutely no anesthetic and continued to tell me to shut up while I screamed through the pain of that. That day of my daughter's birth was beautiful because I love her and she was healthy and beautiful and perfect. That day was also a reminder to me that when you are racialized and female and disabled, and a former foster kid with no support system, that you are considered a nobody, disposable, and that you can be publicly abused with no fear of retribution. No, I didn't report him. 
not because I didn't know what all the things he did to me was wrong, but because I'd already experienced so many times when my word against authoritative abuse was ignored. My voice never won. My voice had never been believed. My voice had always been dismissed. So I chose to take the joy of my daughter and go on my way because I knew I would survive because I always did. If you love the podcast, please leave the podcast a review or subscribe on iTunes to keep it going. Think you have a birth conversation that matters and want to share? We are always looking for stories. So contact us at thebirthtalks.com or on Facebook. If you have comments on this episode, find us on Twitter or Facebook at The Birth Talks or use the hashtag The Birth Talks. I'm your host, Trish Langley Frempong. Until next time.